is Dr. Marty Freed, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Catherine Lawrence. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast brought to you by Clinical Correlations. Bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we are finishing our discussion on unhealthy alcohol use and alcohol use disorder by focusing on treatment. This podcast has many thank yous for peer review. Dr. Jennifer McNeely, Associate Professor of NYU School of Medicine, Dr. Irene Swanenberg, Bellevue Attending, Dr. Oscar Buckstein, Harvard Professor, Dr. Anthony Accursio from NYU Brooklyn, as well as a special mention to Dr. Bill Fuller from Columbia and Dr. Evan Harmon from University of Virginia. All right, let's get started with the five questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. This episode, we're going to start with the throwback pearl, screening for unhealthy alcohol use. At what levels of drinking does unhealthy alcohol use usually ring a red flag? And what are some of the screeners for unhealthy alcohol use? Pearl 1, Espert. What does brief intervention and counseling part of Espert entail? Pearl 2, First Line Medications. What are the FDA-approved meds for alcohol use disorder, and what are some of the contraindications for those meds? Pearl 3, second-line medications. What are the second-line meds to help patients with alcohol use disorder, and what are their limitations? Pearl 4, emerging and novel therapeutic options. What meds appear to show benefit for alcohol use disorder, but aren't ready for mainstream use yet? All right, Marty. What's the deal with flipping the order of the podcast? I thought we had a good thing going with four new pearls followed by a throwback pearl from a prior episode. What gives? Yeah, listen, I'm I'm fully open to criticism, but hear me out. On unhealthy alcohol use part one, we discussed disease definitions, screening, risks and benefits of alcohol use on a macro level. And now we're actually zooming into specific therapeutic options. And since interventions often start with screening, which is the first part of this super sweet ESPERT, I figured we should probably go there. Right. So remember, ESPERT is an acronym that stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. This framework helps diagnose unhealthy alcohol use and initiate treatment. We'll get to the rest of the BERT of the ESPERT in our next pearl. Okay. So Marty, do you remember what the difference between unhealthy alcohol use and alcohol use disorder is? Oh, you betcha. So unhealthy alcohol use is a catch-all phrase. It incorporates risky use. So here, think about your kind of average college binge drinker, all the way up to alcohol use disorder, which is really any amount of drinking behavior that has negative health or social outcomes. Awesome. Nicely done. And in terms of screening for those who like hard numbers, what are some red flag numbers for high-risk drinking? Oh, yeah. So that's the 37414, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So to translate those numbers, the number for women of any age or men older than 65 for risky drinking is defined as more than three drinks in any one sitting or more than seven drinks a week. And then for men less than 65, there's a little bit more leeway room. More than four drinks in a day or 14 drinks in a week means they have unhealthy alcohol use and should be assessed for health and social impacts. Awesome. Thanks, Shreya. And do you guys remember some validated measures to screen for unhealthy alcohol use? So I'm all about the audit C, mostly because I know it's a three-item questionnaire, and then I just open it up on my EMR rather than remembering any specific questions. Right. So these questions are basically, one, how often do you have any alcohol-containing drink? Two, how many drinks do you have in a typical day when you're drinking? 
And three, how often do you drink more than six drinks? Great. And then you can use those numbers and plug them into an audit seat calculator that will risk stratify a patient for you. Um, and if you want, you can shorten that to the single item screener with the most sensitive question to ask being just how often in the last year did you have more than three drinks in any night or for men more than four drinks in any night. And any number greater than one night is an indication to probe further. Nice. So that covers the S in SBIRT. That's screening and our throwback pearl. Let's move on to our first pearl and the rest of the acronym. BERT. <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's start with this scenario. So you're seeing a Mr. New Patient in Clinic. He's a 46-year-old gentleman who's had an urgent care appointment for abdominal pain that resolved with Mylanta and a PPI, and now he's here to establish care. He's got hypertension, but no other medical problems. All right, so we discussed screening all patients for unhealthy alcohol use, but in this patient, my spidey sense is already firing for alcohol issues because A, this is a podcast about alcohol, and B, he already has two alcohol-related medical problems that we know about. Right, the alcoholic gastritis and the hypertension? Yeah, and possibly more that we haven't even yet diagnosed. Yep, and he screens positive using the single item screener and says he does drink more than four drinks in a day and it's about 16 beers a week when we ask him a little bit more about it. It doesn't look like the drinking is affecting his work or his social life, so he's more in the unhealthy alcohol use category. Yeah, so I have to say in real life, it's not often teed up this perfectly, you know, for an opportunity to intervene. As we all know, real life situations are never this nice. Um, but when the stars do align like this, I definitely give myself a silent fist pump and proceed to that next part of the expert, which is brief intervention. Yes, let's B.I. the heck out of this guy. All right, how do I start? Okay, wait, easy, Marty. So let's not overwhelm the poor guy. I think we have to think about the brief intervention as a type of focused motivational counseling intervention where the provider spends, you know, about five minutes after screening doing the following. So one, raise the subject. Two, give feedback about the level of risk. Three, encourage the patient's motivations to change. And four, set goals or make a plan to implement that change. Kate, that sounds great and all, but my question is, why should I spend five minutes of my 20-minute visit on this, you know? What degree of evidence supports the SBIRT protocol? I mean, are we talking here statins in the water, pretty much proven benefit, or are we more like vitamin D? Ah, maybe it works, but not really causing any harm, so why not? Yeah, that's a great question, Shrey. I actually looked into this because I had the same healthy skepticism. No offense, Kate. None taken. So this 2006 article published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine did this massive systematic review of many different clinical preventative services, from tetanus immunization to mammography, and basically ranked them all based on their effectiveness. ESPERT was near the top of that list with the same score as colon cancer screening. Both of those were above pap smears for cervical cancer screening and routine lipid screening. We'll include the paper in the show notes for those who want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Wow, that's actually huge. I mean, it makes you think about the amount of time we spend on PAPs and lipid screening relative to alcohol screening. Mm -hmm. Right. So guys, my ears are perked. Let's break down each of those components a little bit more and how might that conversation go? Yeah, the caveat we should point out here is that everyone has their own style of interviewing. So we're going to give you some examples that we've found to be effective and you can try them out to see what feels right. Okay, so in this scenario, we have already raised the subject, which is the first step, by screening him. 
but after it helps maybe to open the conversation with something like, do you mind if we talk about this a little bit more about the effects of alcohol on your health? And then really get into understanding his views a little better. Yeah. Next, giving feedback is often simple as, hey, I'm concerned about your drinking and how it might be affecting your health. Do you know the recommended limits for drinking alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would even argue that just pointing out the relationship between his drinking and hypertension or the relationship between his drinking and his GERD and then asking him if he's thought about this would also satisfy his just simple feedback. And then the third part, I would imagine the motivation to change is the old 1 to 10 motivational interviewing scale. I mean, if it works. Yeah, so pretty much it's on a scale of 1 to 10, how ready are they to change? And then the follow-up question is the most important here. So once you've had them commit to a number of how ready they are to change, you ask the patient why they didn't choose a lower number. So for example, if your patient says, no, I'm not really interested, maybe a five, you respond with, oh, I see. Well, tell me why you didn't say that you're a three or a four. Right. So this allows the patient to talk about what motivation they have instead of dwelling on the motivation they may lack. And then the final part of the brief intervention is goal setting and planning to finish the session. And here I want to mention not to get too overzealous, short-term achievable goals, even if it's something like cutting out one or two extra drinks a day, are far more effective than grand, idealistic ones. Um, and goals can also be focused on starting counseling or a referral to an addiction treatment program or a peer support group. By peer support, do you mean AA? Yeah, I mean, that's one example. Um, AA, or Alcoholics Anonymous, is just one of a number of these sort of 12-step peer support programs that are pretty popular. There's also groups for people who use opioids, which is Narcotics Anonymous, or NA, marijuana, cocaine, all kinds of things. The common theme to these groups is that sobriety is obtained through personal exploration and acceptance. And then there's this belief in some spiritual higher power that's also emphasized, which may not appeal to everyone. Right. An alternative to these 12-step programs is a method called SMART Recovery. SMART is an acronym. It stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training. SMART is a trademark process. It replaces that spiritual foundation of AA with a more flexible cognitive behavioral framework. It's newer, and the meetings are significantly fewer than AA. Wait, so if it's trademarked, Marty, does that mean we're allowed to mention it on the show? What kind of kickbacks are you getting? Oh, boy, do I wish, Kate. <laughs> okay, so smart recovery can be good for patients interested in groups, but for whom AA maybe isn't the best fit. Exactly. All right, so to summarize this section, after screening, a simple brief intervention in the office tailored to the patient's specific goals and beliefs can be effective. And remember that brief intervention is for people with uncomplicated, unhealthy alcohol use. It consists of four parts. First, raise the subject, then provide feedback, evaluate motivation, and finally, set some goals. Okay, so let's revisit our case. Despite a perfectly executed expert, our patient misses his next appointment and returns to the clinic several months later. So you notice from a quick chart review that he's been admitted to the hospital twice for alcohol withdrawal, and you discover that he's been fired from work, and then he admits that his drinking has gotten out of hand. So what do we do now? So at this point, our patient's formerly unhealthy alcohol use has now progressed to alcohol use disorder. And patients with alcohol use disorder should get a multimodal approach with blends, the non-farm approaches that we talked about with meds. So we spoke with Dr. Oscar Buckstein, one of the authors of the American Psychiatric Association's guidelines 
for the pharmacologic treatment of alcohol use disorder. He mentioned this really awesome idea of providing patients with a menu of therapeutic options to choose from. I, I talked about a menu, you know, to lay out things because I think people like the idea, even though they're more often to turn it back to you and say, what do you think, Doc? What do you, what do you think I should do? <laughs> You're the doctor. But, yes, but they like the idea that, you know, what they want is being considered. So I, I generally lay out a menu. Yeah, you know, that's very patient-centered. I like that. We've already covered the non-pharma options, which certainly belong on that menu, things like Espert, the AA meeting, Smart Recovery. So now we can expand on that menu with some of the medications to offer. All right, so let's start with the first-line meds for our patients who are using alcohol and are interested in quitting. Or, Marty, even just cutting down. Oh, well, excuse me. Don't be sassy, Marty. Shreya makes a good point. These options are for people who want to quit and for those who just want to cut down. Harm reduction, man. All right, point, point taken. So let's stick with this menu metaphor here. What are the meds that are on the entree list for alcohol use disorder? Okay, so most major professional societies recommend either naltrexone or acamprosate as first-line therapy for patients with alcohol use disorder. And I think what really helps hammer home these meds being first-line are their number needed to treat. Naltrexone has a number needed to treat of 12 to prevent returning to heavy drinking. And if you look at their number needed to treat to prevent any drinking, naltrexone is 20, while acamprosate has a number needed to treat of 12. Yeah, wow, Shreya, those are good numbers. Yeah. All right, so it sounds like we actually have two pretty solid options here. Let's talk about the opiate antagonist naltrexone first. The mechanism here is pretty interesting. It's thought to work on the reward pathway, which blunts that anticipatory excitement that people with alcohol use disorder typically experience just before drinking. Yeah, and naltrexone can generally be started the same day with a starting dose of 50 milligrams, which can go up to 100 milligrams for some, with the goal to complete a 6 to 12 month course of treatment. Right, and there's also a long-acting depo naltrexone injection called Vivitrol, which is given every four weeks. The important thing to keep in mind is that naltrexone should be avoided in patients with cirrhosis. So maybe this is not a great med for people with advanced alcohol liver disease. Yeah, and people should be screened for concomitant opioid use as well, because naltrexone can actually precipitate withdrawal symptoms in patients who are physically dependent on opioids. Yeah, I really can't emphasize that part enough. We really should wait at least 7 to 14 days after opioid use to start naltrexone, or else you're going to have some pretty salty patients. Mm -hmm. And speaking of salty patients, are there any other side effects we should be warning our patients about? Uh, yeah, that's a good question, Shreya. Um, now, Trexone is actually really well tolerated, but as far as side effects go, the GI stuff is probably the most common, so nausea, abdominal pain, and diarrhea, which are seen in between you know, 10 and 30% of patients. And it would be a good idea to tell patients about those side effects so they don't give up on the treatment. Also to note the injection site irritation um, does sometimes happen for the depot shot. All right. And if they have used opioids in the past, it is so important to tell them that they can have a fatal overdose if they stop their naltrexone and start again on the same dose of heroin or opioids they've been on in the past. Yeah. So this is the thing about naltrexone that will kill patients. Their mu receptors, which were blocked while they were on the naltrexone, are much more sensitive to those opioids when the naltrexone is out of their system. Right. And for this reason, the APA actually recommends against its use in patients with ongoing or potential 
use of opioids in the future. Right. So that was a great review of naltrexone. What about acamprosate? Yeah. So acamprosate is a centrally acting medication. It maybe has some GABA and some NMDA activity, um, and it also has good data to support its use. Yeah, so despite also working on neurotransmitters, the mechanism of incamprosate is actually entirely different. So it's thought to reduce the physical and psychological discomfort like sweating, anxiety, insomnia that many alcohol-dependent patients experience once they stop drinking. So it usually reaches its full effectiveness in five to eight days, so you should tell your patients that they may be uncomfortable for that first week. Right. But realistically, guys, I just find acamprosate a little difficult for our patients to manage. It's three times a day dosing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that amount of pills can be challenging for some people. Another limitation for acamprosate is that end-stage renal disease is a contraindication. Right. And if the creatinine clearance is less than 50, you got a half the dose, so one tab three times a day. And then it's contraindicated if the creatinine clearance is less than 30. Yep. It also carries the risks of diarrhea as a pretty common side effect. And then really important to note is there are also neuropsych side effects like irritability and rarely, but most seriously, suicidality, which probably has to do with its action on those neural receptors that we were talking about. Yeah, super important to warn patients about those. Uh, any guidance about the duration of therapy for acamprosate? For sure. So usually prescribing up to six months or longer for those who benefit or want to continue it. I'm sure this is a very patient, clinician-dependent choice. Um, and then how do you guys manage patients who continue to drink while they're on naltrexone or acamprosate? Yeah, so again, this is like a pretty patient-specific decision, but if the desired outcome isn't achieved after about four to six weeks, it's probably time to try another strategy. Right. Okay, so to sum up our third pearl, when our patients are ready to start pharmacotherapy, the best first-line meds are naltrexone and acamprosate. Each of these have their own contraindication comorbidity. We'll use naltrexone with caution in liver failure, and acamprosate should be dose-reduced in mild CKD and avoided in severe renal disease. Okay, just one more point I want to add is that pharmacologic treatment is key. We know that less than 9% of patients who need treatment for alcohol use disorder ever receive a single prescription. And I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for this, but we should really try to close that gap and offer these patients treatments that really may help them. All right, guys, so I'm unofficially titling this next section, The Bench Warmers. The who waters? The Bench Warmers. So the following group of meds are just waiting in the wings for their time to shine. They are being used to treat alcohol use disorder and are slowly being studied, but they don't have that kind of first-line starter recognition yet. Okay, Marty, I'm sorry, but I have to call you out on this whole mixed metaphor thing. I thought we were talking about entrees and food, and now you're making up some sports references. Shouldn't it be something like if naltrexone and acamprosate are the entrees, this group would be like the side dishes or something? <laughs> right. Okay. So if that's the case, then topiramate's probably going to be waffle fries and gabapentin is the mac and cheese for no reason other than that they're delicious and underappreciated dishes. So does that make disulfiram the green beans of meds for alcohol use disorder? Yes, no one ever wants the green beans. Nope, exactly. We really don't need to spend much time on disulfiram on the podcast because it's rarely used in office-based primary care settings. Technically, it's first-line recommendation FDA approved, but as Dr. Buckstein puts it, a medication used exclusively for the fear of its adverse side effects is probably not a good design. Got it. No disulfiram. Shrey, I'm intrigued by the waffle fries and the mac and cheese. That is topiramate and gabapentin, respectively, right? Right. So for topiramate for alcohol use disorder, 
All right, I'm going to bring back the number needed to treats. You know how much I love NNTs. So it's an effective medication uh, in that the number needed to treat is 12 to significantly reduce heavy drinking days. And that's comparable to that of naltrexone and acamprosate. Yeah, you know, the VA and the Department of Defense must also love that NNT because they actually list topiramate as a first-line medication for this very reason. Yeah, what concerns me about topiramate is the, um, shoot, what were we talking about? I could have sworn we were... (laughs) Yeah, nicely done, Marty. We all know that topiramate is associated with cognitive dysfunction or mental fog. The reality is that the number needed to harm for cognitive dysfunction is also 12, Meaning that for every person that topiramate helps control their drinking, we're going to cause another person to have clinically significant mental fog. Man, right. And then the number needs to harm for taste issues or paresthesias or even worse, seven and four respectively. All right. So what I'm hearing is that this is an effective medication, but its side effects limit its utility. All right. What's next? Gabapentin. So this is another medication that has some good supportive data. Right. And the largest randomized trial on gabapentin showed a nice dose-dependent response in abstinence rates when gabapentin 1,800 milligrams was compared to 900 milligrams a day and placebo. On the high-dose regimen, 17% of patients were able to achieve abstinence after 12 weeks, compared to 11% on low dose and 4% on the placebo. 1,800 milligrams a day? Sheesh, that's a healthy dose of gabapentin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, which is why this can be a tough sell for some people. The study that Shreya just mentioned says that there was a 43% dropout rate, largely due to medication side effects like drowsiness. All right, so kind of like mac and cheese. It's good, but definitely to be used with caution. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay, and then finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention baclofen in this group of meds, but only because the data about it really isn't that great. This med got a lot of buzz early on, but the early studies that showed positive effects weren't replicated, and the side effects are pretty severe. Okay, so to summarize our side dish options, topiramate and gabapentin both have reasonable efficacy data, but their use is limited by their small studies, mixed results, and significant adverse effects that seem to accumulate at doses required to curtail alcohol use. So lastly, let's talk about some novel therapeutics that are in the pipeline for treating alcohol use disorder, but are a little out of left field. Maybe way out of left field. Really, guys? A new sports metaphor? Come on. (laughs) Right. So the therapies we already mentioned are some of the better known ones and the ones that have the most data behind it. But it's true. They might not work for everyone. There's still a lot of room for other therapies. Yeah, so there's a few therapeutic options that have been making the medicine literature headlines that I'm kind of excited about. The first is neuromodulation. Oh, like brain deep stimulation. Yeah, exactly. So the neuropsych community is trying to target the nucleus accumbens, which has been shown to be integral in mediating reward behavior. There were a bunch of preliminary studies in animal models that showed promise, and now there's more than 60 articles in the Medline literature showing that brain stim decreases cravings and consumption. So clinical trials are still ongoing, obviously, but the early data is promising. Right on. One that I'm kind of excited about is nalmaphene, but I honestly don't know if we'll ever see it in the States. Ooh, that's the one they use in Europe, right? Yeah, definitely. This is the kappa opioid receptor antagonist, so apparently it has a longer half-life and better bioavailability than naltrexone. I've looked into this and really have no idea why it's not yet available in the U.S. So if anyone listening has insider drug farm information, please let us know. Yeah, hashtag med Twitter. Hashtag med Twitter. Thanks, Twitter. 
Okay, and then the last one that I've been following pretty closely and am excited about is, and don't laugh. Ooh, what? Psychedelics. What? Far out. Okay, well, this might be a silly question, but how are they even researching that nowadays? Yeah, so I think the drug regulators have started to come around on this a bit because at least from you know my review, the data is really pretty compelling. They actually started doing large cohort research on alcohol use and LSD in the 1950s and early 1960s, and the data at that time showed a global reduction in alcohol use by something like 50%. I will say that that data got slammed for the rigor of the methods and the um, <clears throat> bias of the researchers. Yeah, okay. But the community has recognized the potential, and there's now several new and better design studies that show LSD may have comparable effects to naltrexone and a camprosate, and get this, in a single dose. Wow. Yeah, I've definitely read a little bit about this. There are hundreds of ongoing trials now looking at the role of psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA for common things like substance use, PTSD, and depression. Right. Super cool, guys. All right. So to review this section... Therapies that are on the horizon include deep brain stimulation, nalmefin, which is currently in use in Europe, and psychedelics including psilocybin and LSD. All right, let's move on to the takeaways. Throwback Pearl. Unhealthy alcohol use is a broad term that incorporates a spectrum of alcohol use from risky drinking to binge drinking to alcohol use disorder. Universal screening of adults for unhealthy alcohol use is recommended, with the most common and validated screening tool being the Audit C. Pearl 1. The first line, non-pharmacological intervention for risky drinking is captured by the mnemonic ESPERT, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. This is a comprehensive, multifaceted approach that includes motivational interviewing, CBT, support groups, and other options. ESPERT can be initiated in the clinic by primary care providers and tailored to specific needs of patients. Pearl 2. For patients with more severe alcohol use or alcohol use disorder, pharmacologic therapies are recommended in conjunction with ESPERT as first-line treatment. Medications that have proven efficacy and are recommended as initial therapies are naltrexone and acamprosate. Pearl 3. Additional medications that have been shown to be effective but may have less desirable side effect profiles or are less well-studied include the benchwarmers, that is disulfiram, topiramate, and gabapentin. Pearl 4. And finally, novel therapeutic options in the pipeline for alcohol use disorder include neuromodulations, nalmefin, psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD. All right. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of other affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you guys next Wednesday. Take care. Right. And then the third part, I would imagine motivation to change is the good old motive. Ah, start over. I, ha- I practice this that, and it sounded that great. good old motivational interviewing <laughs> scale. Yeah. <laughs> And then for the third part, I would imagine the motivation to change is the old motivation interviewing one to hundred. A oh, one to ten. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I'm really motivated at ninety nine. Okay, all right. Why are you not a ninety seven, Trey? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay, okay.